Good morning, Dawn. Hello, Tanya. The Here birds are, are chirping. Again. The rain has passed at last. <laughs> so, Nadia Boltzweber. Yay! She's a force, right? Yes. Yeah. I know. Love this woman. She's so brave and funny. Humble. And humble. Yeah, I would say so, too. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Well, I'll just say I'm so glad that she wrote this book and that I read it, and I think that everyone should read it. Yes. Shameless. Yes. If this book came out in 2019. I was trying to remember, did we discuss this like in person? Yes. Okay, I thought so. It was probably my favorite book of 2019. And um, I have since read it a couple of times and read parts out loud to my family. So. Good for you. Yes, I think it should be sort of mandatory reading for my teenagers. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Another conversation that, you know... <laughs> Like climate change, the conversation that we don't have, right? The conversation about sex with our kids in particular. Um, Even in trusted relationships, that topic doesn't often come up, I think, particularly in Christian circles, I'll say that. Right. And so the usefulness, uh, the helpfulness of being able to have that conversation is freeing. And she even has in here, even for herself, even for Nadia Boltz-Weber, that it was very difficult for her to talk to her own children about it, how they ended right. up, they had all these goals and they ended right. up just giving them a book. Hand them the book. <laughs> exactly. I know. In the early years. So I feel like I fall into, into that too and that we had a bare bones talk about it when they were at that age. Uh-huh. But every time I've sort of tried to broach the subject, they don't want to talk about it. Right. And so how to find those openings to talk about it feels impossible. Right. It's a challenging thing. I, I, I've thought about it a lot with four kids, and, and now that they're mostly grown, we have more open conversations about sex. But when they were younger, because you look at them, middle school is like when it's just raging, right? And you look at your kid in middle school and you think, you're a baby. Like, how could this possibly be something that's on your mind and happening in your body? And you just It's a leap to see it sometimes. And yet, that's the prime age to be open to that and to try to create that environment, you know, where they can talk to you or, you know, express themselves and stuff like that. And it was challenging. I don't know that we did that well uh, when they were younger. You've told stories, though, about conversations you've had with them when they were teenagers that I was really impressed by. (laughs) We have had uh, quite a few, yes, very... um, detailed conversations (laughs) particularly with my girls I think they're more open to talking about it more curious Um, and I guess because being a woman it's easier for me to talk to them about what sexuality is like for a woman whereas for my son you know I'm always kind of like still sharing the woman's point of view with him you know so it's a little different there but with my girls it's oh it runs the gamut So where should we begin with, with this book? Right. Where well, do you want to start? Have, I have a few things that I wanted to talk to you about. Do okay. You, do you want me to jump in? Sure. Yeah, go ahead. Getting right into it. On page mm-hmm. 152, I had uh, marked. I know that's not the beginning, <laughs> but I kind of felt like this, this idea for me is the most important idea in this book. And it, it covers more than just sexuality. Mm-hmm. So on 152, she says... Everything that happens to us happens to our bodies. Mm. Every act of love, every insult, every moment of pleasure, every interaction with other humans, every hateful thing we have said or which has been said to us has happened to our bodies. Yeah. Every kindness, every sorrow, every ounce of laughter, we carry all of it with us within our skin. We are walking embodiments of our entire story. Mm. That resonated with me in all kinds of ways, just as a theater maker, Mm -hmm. that's really important. And if you can't get that, you really can't make theater. Uh So it's much bigger than just sexuality. But if you think about it, what happens to your body when something upsetting happens? I mean, you feel like coursing through your body. We carry memory in our body. Right. We, yeah, we carry and trauma. Scent. Mm-hmm. Like some of the research yeah. around scent right. and, and how that brings us back to a vivid memory. Yes. And yet we, in our, I guess it's sort of the post-enlightenment modern era, we, we really want to believe that we're not physical beings. Separate all that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
how tell me how like you modeled that for me over the years um embodiment you know and being present in your body and and i guess from theater you've given those examples before is that how you learned that was through your theater training or did you have that sense prior like when you were growing up because because for me like there definitely was a separation like the body was less than and the spirit was everything and so there was this sort of hierarchy and a you know that dualism kind of thing going on for sure i think i learned it but i did have the opportunity i did a lot of dance and dance mm-hmm. can be the worst of that right like ballet training uh-huh. can really be a separate kind of experience from spirit but I had a really awesome dance experience in my high school years mm-hmm. with some modern dance and different master classes. So just doing that work uh-huh. is a little bit some of this work. And even as a teenager doing vocal lessons, singing lessons, uh-huh. there's something about doing a singing lesson that's very emotional and can be therapeutic, even though that's not why you're doing it. Right. <laughs> right? Although right. It's a good, I guess that would be a good reason to do it. But... I remember being a teenager and I'd think I was fine. Everything would be going along fine. I'd go to my voice lesson and I'd just start bawling my eyes out. And my voice teacher would be like, that's normal, you know, Uh singing, you know, you're breathing deeply. You're letting your body open up and you're holding on to some sadness there. And so that has been with me all through the years that I took voice lessons that I had Uh to kind of be ready for that annoying moment in my voice lesson when I was going to start crying and then we'd have to stop. <laughs> I'm sure your daughter probably Absolutely. That yes, that's, I'm fascinated because she hasn't described it that way. And, and she is an emotional person, you know, so I haven't pieced that together the way you just described it in her case or in any case, you know. And with any given piece of music or poetry or if it's a piece of text from a play, mm-hmm. sometimes... Your first interaction with it will be very emotional uh-huh. in a way that is not helpful as a final product. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for so you example, have to get that out, right. get it through. So you have to like really work on it, what it means, the poetry, the music, the way it feels in your body, and kind mm-hmm. of get over that feeling that you're just going to sob through it uh-huh. because uh-huh. nobody wants to see that. Right. Yeah, she has described that. So yeah, that yeah. makes sense. That's interesting. I, when we did... Um, Dance Nation. Yeah. Did you see it? I can't remember. I did not get to see it, no. So it's this just really feisty little fabulous play. And I read it and I was shocked by it. I read it. She goes into all kinds of things. But I didn't find it to be emotional in the sense of crying. Mm -hmm. But at our first read through, about three quarters of the way through, I just started crying and I'm like trying to like hold it back. And afterwards, people are, are you okay? And there were just a few things in it in particular in that story. It's about girls, but there is one adolescent boy, you know, so like a 12-year-old boy that's uh-huh. in the mix. And the pressure he gets from his mom not to be a dancer. Uh-huh. There was just something about that. And this he had this little short, sad monologue after that, that just destroyed me, mm-hmm. right? That we don't talk about as much the boys that aren't allowed to be soft. Yes. And she yeah. does talk about she that. She definitely in this book, does. Yeah. That there mm-hmm. are just as many unfair boxes or requirements that we put on young men mm-hmm. as yep. we do on young women. Right. That are equally damaging. Right. The counterpart. If you create one role for, for this gender, you're going to create the opposite role for the other. And we've got to do our roles or feel shame. Or it all falls apart. Yeah, yeah. So that's where the shame comes in. We shame people for it. And I mean, I can just roll into one other thing, which is sort of a big question I left this book with. So she says on page 188, Mm -hmm. I know I'm kind of going from the back toward the front. It's okay, because it's funny that you're starting at the back, because the back for me just sort of fell off. Really? The front of the book is really what stirred me you know and really most of my comments are in the front of the book and I noticed that this morning when I was just kind of you know rechecking and leafing through making sure I had a few things together and so it's interesting anyway go on what page so on page 188 Mm -hmm. in the section this is the benediction chapter yep she says I absolutely have to believe the gospel is powerful enough transgressive enough beautiful enough to heal not only the ones who have been hurt but also those who have done the hurting Mm. Do we see them? Do we see the ways in which they were in all likelihood trying to be faithful? Do we see the ways in which we too may have inadvertently in our own desire to be faithful hurt others? I hate that this is God's economy. 
that the salvation of my enemy is tied up in my own, which is why I sometimes say that the gospel is like the worst good news I ever heard in my life. (laughs) Um, And I guess like part of what I'm interested in is, does this system we're caught in cause, I guess, uh, so we always talk about the victims, right? Especially as women, you know, all all of the ways in which our bodies are commodified but we don't talk about all the people perpetrating the violence or the the hurt Mm -hmm. if they say one in four women has been sexually assaulted but nobody says well then are one in four guys doing the assaulting or Mm -hmm. maybe it's other women i don't know but we never talk about that and that brokenness Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so we're so aware of the just everyday commonplace nature of sexual assault Mm -hmm. But we don't talk about the people doing the assaulting and they must be everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's something that just disturbs me. Mm-hmm. And if there is healing to be had, we have to focus on that too. Right. I think we're finally, it's so dangerous to talk in these huge generalizations that we're doing right now, but you know, we'll, we'll get more specific. And also I feel grateful that we are in a time where victims are being heard where women are coming out and and speaking you know like about this is what happened to me and what to do about that like I feel like that's that's happening and that's forming and and the culture is possibly changing in the direction where that is becoming not just okay but not just acceptable but something that we uphold and that we value and that we say yes this is how it is you should be able to say the truth and what what to do with like you say the perpetrator of that harm we don't know what to do with that we criminalize it and maybe we should i I don't know the answer truthfully what is the redemption what does redemption look like for the person who's done the harm and who are they and what are they like and what are they thinking and how did they get there? Um, I don't have really any experience with that um, other than if I call the church the perpetrator, I have a ton of experience with them. And that's really where she starts in the beginning. I mean, that doesn't answer your question. And I feel the weight of it. I feel like the, the pain of it in the sense that we're so incomplete in our willingness to embrace and to show love and how that looks, which I feel like Nadia talks about all the time. Like she, she's clear about pointing out the, the people who are in and the people who are out and how we all want to keep those lines going. Like we all want to decide. That's a lot of what religion does is decide who's in and who's out. And then once we start embracing and like a Jesus way of living where he was just moving that line over and over and over one of the one of the sentences in here that she says that I just loved is that Jesus is less concerned about the rule or the 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 barrier than he is about getting over the barrier to the person on the other side of it right and even when we feel like we've been redeemed or like our eyes have been opened or we have some new healing or some new truth we still (laughs) draw a line and say but that jerk over there (laughs) no way you know and this is what she's saying here is like can I you know the worst good news I've ever heard like can I look to them and love them in a way that causes their life to flourish and you know that's where she begins is like wanting sexual flourishing for all people I think gosh what a freeing statement that is but yeah when it comes down to the people that you think don't deserve it (laughs) I mean I suspect it is tied up in the boxes that we put on the people that are perpetrating Mm -hmm. and so that if we did have real sexual flourishing and really allowed for more exploration and even education then then maybe people wouldn't be in that box Mm -hmm. where that they then so what do you a, mean by that? Like, violence. Well, I mean, to... just to be general, I mean, mm-hmm. I don't mean to say it's always men, but I mean, right. let's be frank, it's usually men. Right. So if young men are brought up with a certain set of expectations, mm-hmm. it's not just their hormones, right. you know, it's not just testosterone and, and sex drive. Why is it that men grow up and they're likely to commit these acts of violence? Because mm-hmm. it's got to be a lot of guys. 
that's sort of the thing that is scary for me to even think about as a mother of boys and just as a lover of people and all of that, that something we're doing, we know from the data, if it's that, it's not like there's one guy going out and assaulting a (laughs) hundred women, maybe, but that's, I'd say probably the least. We don't, yeah, I don't know know the research on that, but yeah. Um, So it's probably a ton of young men or whatever men that have committed some kind of assault. Mm-hmm. And I suspect well, it's that it's sort of what they're you're socialized because they're taught that they have to be the leader, they have to be the strong one, and all of that harmful stuff. Mm-hmm. So you're saying it's systemic, it's yes. not just a few bad apples? Well, I'm saying that the boys <laughs> are just as much victims mm-hmm. as the girls in a certain sense. Sure. And I'm sure someone could turn that upside down and say, yes, but we well, live in a patriarchy. Exactly. And, so- and that, I mean, that part comes through loud and clear and I can't help but say it, you know, like, except that the platform of power is given to them, you know, and, and with that comes the expectations. And that's what you're saying. You know, these are the expectations that come with expectation of dominance, you know, like if you're going to be dominant over women and that's quote God's plan, then you need to behave in a certain way. Yeah. So I'm going to tell a story and then I can cut this if I need to. Okay. <laughs> so I'll just give an example from my life mm-hmm. that I had a good friend in high school and I haven't told this story out loud for at least 20 years. Okay. When we got to call, we lost touch because he moved away and he was someone that he always, you know, high school, he had a crush on me and then I had a crush on him, but it didn't kind of line up, but we were always good friends as you can be in high school. Mm-hmm. And then he moved away, and we met up again in college. Mm-hmm. And he was going to a college sort of near mine. We started talking on the phone. It had this sort of romantic underpinning to it. And there had been a few, like, hand-holding little, like, moments in high school. So we always had that attraction towards each other. Mm-hmm. And he invited me up to his college for a Valentine's Day dance and party at his frat house. Right? So I was raised not in the church, So I didn't have some of the defenses that are damaging, but also somewhat protective, right? (laughs) So I was very naive (laughs) in thinking that I could go up to this college and stay with some of his friends that were girls in their dorm room and go to him with this party Mm -hmm. and then come home. But he ended up taking advantage of me. Like there was a lot of drinking and then... Even though I thought I said no, whatever, it ended up, it kind of was this horrible kind Mm. of classic college date rape situation. Mm. And over the years of unpacking that, I have really found a lot of compassion for him Mm -hmm. because he was someone I cared about a lot and he was a good boy. You know what I mean? Uh I knew him to be a good boy and a sweet boy. Uh So then to fast forward and try to understand what was happening in him, Uh I really feel like it was... The socialization, I mean, the pressures on him to be a man or what he thought that meant when he invited me up to that party Mm -hmm. and the whole frat party culture with the grain alcohol and the punch and things like that where just the structure around us was such to cause Mm -hmm. this event. Mm -hmm. And so just in my unpacking of that, I feel like I don't know how he would describe it. We did talk after that point quite a few times where I kept trying to say, this was awful. Mm-hmm. I am really upset. Something horrible happened. Uh-huh. And he didn't have, he couldn't understand why I was so upset. Really? Yeah. That's and heartbreaking. Just, um, you know, he's like, I know you're really upset that, that it happened, but I'm really glad it happened. Like, and he thought that was a caring, appropriate thing to say. Right. <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. And so just in the years unpacking that slowly... I feel completely healed from it, and uh-huh. I don't feel any anger toward him, only sort of a sadness that we were both living in this society where that could happen, and it happens every day. Yep. And so when I hear the college statistics, I'm like, well, of course. Uh-huh. And so that's what I mean by it's systemic. Yeah. And I feel like it's the reason I wanted to tell the story. I didn't know if I would. Mm-hmm. I couldn't help but think of that when I when I think about these issues. Sure. Um, but a real story just grounds us. Yeah, Instead absolutely. of me saying, well, in our system, 
boys are socialized this way. I'm saying I knew a boy. Right. And he was socialized this way, even though he was a good person. Right. And I'm sure he's off having well, a wonderful thankfully life. thankfully you knew that about him. Like you, right. you had that as a baseline right. to go to. And we know that most sexual assault is from people you know. You know. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there's a wide range of the um, darkness within those experiences. And maybe mine was on the lighter end of the scale of dark. Mm. I don't know if that's a coping thing I tell myself, but I do feel like it is probably on the less damaging of the damaging sexual assault experiences. Uh-huh. But that's how I, I can ask those questions. Like, what is that force here? I know there's lots of young men who have done that. Uh-huh. That's amazing to me that you can tell that story that way. That really is tremendous. Uh, I, I'm sorry that happened to you. And... I can understand more what you're saying just by hearing that story. So thank you. And with the Me Too movement, yeah, I remember thinking, well, maybe I should tell some people about this, but I don't because it's not something you talk about. Right. Even though I don't have any pain about it, like I, you know what I mean? I really don't. I don't know how to like. <laughs> and, feel... and that's dicey, isn't it? Because there's an expectation too there, where, you know, like if you say Me Too, you're expected to act a certain way and think a certain thing, say a certain thing, um, or be judged. And so I admire your courage oh. to say that. I do. So thank you. I don't know if I interrupted you. No, you I mean, it's not something. to say it wasn't very painful for a long time afterwards. And mm-hmm. I did go to therapy. I was smart enough, even as an 18 year old to be like, this happened my freshman year of high school, of, of college. Mm-hmm. And I did go through the college therapy program because I'm like, you know, they do have a counseling school. <laughs> and I was... Very, I don't know what the right word is, just, I was a mess for a while Mm -hmm. after that. So it's not to say it wasn't very difficult. Uh, I'm just Mm -hmm. saying that now, so many years later, I really don't feel any pain or anger or, I I feel anger at the system. Mm -hmm. That I can say wholeheartedly. And Mm -hmm. I feel a lot of anger toward the Greek system that is Uh allowed to persist in our college (laughs) environments. And of course, admittedly, I have a very skewed vision of that because of my experience. It has so, a reputation for that. Right, it does. So and warranted. we just say it's mm-hmm. kind of the boys will be boys thing, mm-hmm. where we have to kind of really stop doing that and examine it as institutions and as a society. Mm-hmm. That makes complete sense to me, even though I have no experience with that. What a brave girl you are. <laughs> really, I'm in awe of you. But, like, listen, we've been good friends mm-hmm. for 15 years, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I've never told you that. Right. Right. Why? I know. That's the value of someone taking the, the chance, you know, to write something like this. And, and I, I wanted to say, like, at the beginning that this is the kind of book that I wish for every person to be in a group of trusted people where you can read this together and have that conversation and be able to share some of those things like for it to create an opportunity for that so thank you for doing that here in this space can i ask you a question sure did you blame yourself yes okay so even without a church background yes i had to walk through that that took years uh-huh. even still sometimes it's i I was naive. So is that blame? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I went and I wanted a romantic encounter with him. Mm-hmm. I thought like, oh, maybe we'll date long distance. I had all those romantic mm-hmm. notions, mm-hmm. but um, I didn't want that to happen. And of yeah. course, we didn't talk about it. What if he had said on the phone or in a letter, we were writing all these letters back and forth. I and mean, it was very romantic uh-huh. leading up to that. I was thinking romantic weekend, maybe we'll make out. <laughs> <laughs> He was thinking something different. Right. <laughs> yeah. And even even drinking. with communication, which is what, you know, we uphold to our children. Like, you know, you need to be able to talk about it. You need to be able to, like, express yourself and communicate. And, consent. Yeah. And I, I do think that if there had been a little bit more of a culture of consent, it might have been helpful. Mm-hmm. I, I, so I did blame myself for the drinking. Okay. Because... I was very drunk. Now there was like grain alcohol in the punch. Mm-hmm. So that's like, this is what my brain did all uh-huh. those years when I was working this out was you're the one that went up there and got totally shit faced. Mm-hmm. 
at a frat party. How stupid, right? So that's where I mean, like, I was really naive. That was so stupid. Like, a mother or a wise auntie could have seen that happening a million miles away, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, also, I should have seen what was happening before it happened. Do you know some of the steps leading up to the actual assault? But I didn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and so these are, innocence, naive. Aren't these such fine lines, though? Like, think yeah. about... Gosh, I could say a million things right now. Um, you know, I don't think it's this book. It's this other book that I just wanted to also recommend. It's called Pure by Linda K. Klein. And the subtitle is Inside the Evangelical Movement that Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free. And she goes around and interviews all of her youth group friends. Um, she has sort of this epiphany, this this moment of clarity, and then she gets curious and wonders if anybody else experienced anything like this based on how we were raised in this culture. And so it's all interviews with them. And I think this is where the story is of the young woman who, similar situation, right, and was raped. And her father's first question to her was, what were you wearing? And that this is the kind of church culture that makes that question okay that even introduces that question. Right. You know? well, and why so, would you go into his dorm room alone? Right. And and there's one thing to say, like, concern about putting yourself in harm's way. And there's another <laughs> edge to that that says, well, if you do that, you get what you get, you know? And that is such a fine line. I think about it, like, with raising daughters. Yes, I want <laughs> to say... I want to say those stupid, horrible things that you read about, like, you know, boys are, you can't trust them. They only, only want one thing. one yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. I feel the desire to warn her in a certain sense, but on the other hand, I don't Your wanna, freshman self? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Warn her? No, I mean my daughter. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. I want to tell her my story. I haven't. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I ever could, because uh-huh. I don't want to make her afraid of men, right? So I'm kind of... What do I do with that? I don't know. So the best thing I can do is have her read a book like this. (laughs) I don't know, but that's so real and poignant and powerful and intimate and life-changing. I mean, I know there are, this is the territory where we feel like we're telling our secrets to our kids that feels dangerous. And what will they do with that information? How will they hear it? Where will they park it? What box will they put it in? You know, they're young and <laughs> they've already rejected us in a million ways, right? And all that with growing up. And yet there's so much beauty in the story you're telling. If only she could hear that, you know, that would be a prayer. That if that moment came to you, that you would have that courage and that she would have that grace, that it would be valuable to her because it... It is a valuable experience. It is. A, and to be able to share it and pass along the strength that comes from that and the resilience and the ability to see someone who harmed you with eyes of love, eyes of forgiveness, eyes of understanding and that kind of thing. That's just amazing. So she has that in you. And I hope that, that somehow that can happen. And sometimes when I've heard you talk about the pain, and also I also read Pure, Mm -hmm. just the devastation that comes from having grown up in the purity movement. Yes. (laughs) And how it can be very damaging to your sexual flourishing for a lifetime to turn off those, to be programmed for shame, and then to turn that off suddenly and have it be... Absolutely. Now that we're in the fireplace, she has that. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. That was a section I did want to talk about. She has this great metaphor of the fire yeah and I guess it's a pretty common one I hadn't heard it because again I didn't really grow up in church culture but at the beginning of chapter seven which is called the fireplace it's a quote from a a friend she's talking to who says I remember in youth group they had this metaphor about a fire which they used all the time uh the fireplace I asked rolling my eyes and so I guess did you have the fireplace metaphor in your sort of I mean I don't remember that specifically I remember the other ones I think she's the one who lists them I'm trying to remember where about the band-aid um that loses its stickiness you know because it's been put on and taken off the flower 
that gets passed around and every boy pulls a petal off and then it's just a stem you know left for the girl's husband because she's given herself away to everybody else um or the cookie the cookie like everybody what like spits on it or something yeah like you know throws it on the floor and whatever would you eat this you know that kind of thing and it was always about the girl you know those stories weren't told like you say the other side you know of who <laughs> who are the partners that this girl is with you know and and they're gonna marry someone you know that kind of thing so yeah the shame and the the sense of responsibility that goes along with that. But she she kind of flips the fire metaphor, which I just loved, saying that the fire metaphor actually is pretty good because I guess within the youth group environment, it was used as a metaphor for sex. Like if it, when you're married in a traditional marriage, right. that's the fireplace and that's, that's where the fire goes. And the fire outside of the fireplace is very dangerous and can blow up buildings, etc. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then she says at the bottom of page 120, and fire is dangerous, so we teach them to respect it. Yet I don't know anyone who has not been burned in some way, whether by a hot frying pan, a 4th of July sparkler, or a curling iron. It hurts, and we heal. Of course, there are those who have been burned so badly, the scars never actually disappear. All of these things are true about fire, and so many things are also true about sex. Sex can bring warmth, but it can also be chilling. Sex can bring connection and also alienation. Sex can provide insight, but sometimes confusion, Sex can empower, but sometimes humiliate. And we can teach our kids that every single one of these things is possible in and out of marriage, Mm -hmm. in straight and in queer relationships, in the young and in the old. Sex shines and flickers, and it rages, lights, warms, and burns. Mm -hmm. I just thought that was kind of beautiful. You know, I like metaphors. The Enneagram Four. <laughs> right. Ooh, <laughs> it's hitting your buttons. Love it. It's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> but I just thought that was kind of cool. She redeemed that metaphor. Yeah. Took it out of that youth group setting that could be used to shame and control mm-hmm. to actually being very helpful to... Mm-hmm. It, it is powerful and it is. it can be... It creates life. It can mm-hmm. kill. You know, it, it's, it is very powerful. And right. I think that's why the church wants to contain it. Right. Yeah. Have, so have you used any metaphors with your kids about sex? No. I'm, I'm terrible. trying to think if I have. I don't think I have either. I keep waiting for them to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. But so far there has not been very much of that. Uh-huh. And so... I think if one of them was dating somebody, then we'd find a way right. to talk about it. Right. But somehow when it feels very awkward to say to a 15-year-old, you know, sex is like fire. So, you know, like um, in that situation, I talked to my kids about sex frequently enough, listening to music because they were allowed to listen to whatever they wanted to listen to you know that like these are the things it's so funny like all the conversations we've been having this season I feel like is like a walk through my adolescence and then how I decided I'm not going to do that with my kids you know and so I don't know if I'm going to be like one of those parents now who the pendulum has swung all the way over to the other side you know and so my kids are going to do the exact opposite and really crack down you know well, the main thing is to talk I about don't it. No, I, I mean I was raised in a secular <laughs> home, but my parents didn't talk about it. Okay, my mom not at all, mm-hmm. and my dad only one time when I was dating someone he didn't like, and he was a little bit nervous, and he was like, you know, the only all you're feeling right now is the urge to procreate. He's like, it's not really, you know, he was just, he wanted to make it scientific and bring it down to like urges that are. Procreate too. Right. That, that this isn't romance or I, I don't, it was just his, I don't know. Like mm-hmm. looking back on it, I'm like, what? It was his way of trying to talk me out of it or like warn me. Like talking that, about something that happens at the zoo. Right. Like I know you have having these feelings and you're dating this person whom I don't approve of, by the way. And whatever you're feeling, just know that all it is is your body wanting to procreate. <laughs> That's hilarious. I'll keep that one in, in my yeah, pocket. That for, wasn't uh... helpful. I was so livid because I wasn't we I wasn't sexually active. So I was like, how dare you assume uh-huh. anything? Even though we don't talk about this ever. Right. 
But you felt, well, did you feel permission? Did you feel um, like you had the freedom of choice in that arena? Like, no. if I choose to have sex, I my felt parents... like he thought I was having sex and that offended me. So you didn't think about, but I could if I wanted to. No. Mm-hmm. Good for you. <laughs> because honestly, I think that's the environment that um, the purity culture cre- creates is that's all you're thinking about because it, it's been prohibited. So of course it becomes this, you know, just like the cover of the, of the book, you know, it becomes the forbidden fruit, liter- you know, like literally. And so the idea that you can't makes it even more alluring and even more interesting and fascinating and like something you want to fight for, I guess, maybe. I don't know. Or shun. <laughs> well, and I wanted to, this reminded me of our conversation last week mm-hmm. where she talks about it's not the same. A hurt that comes from the church in the name of God mm-hmm. is deeper and more damaging than a hurt that comes from media or, or the mm-hmm. society. So when I read this, I was like, we were just talking about this when I reread it on page seven. Yeah. But I will not indulge in the sin of false equivalency. To admit that both the church and our culture can cause harm is not the same as saying the harm from both is equivalent. It is not. Because as harmful as the messages from society are, what society does not do is say that these messages are from God. Mm -hmm. Our culture does not say to me that the creator of the universe is disgusted by my cellulite. Yeah. And so I just, based on our conversation last week on freeing Jesus, you were, you were saying, you you were saying something along those lines. And I just wanted to acknowledge that, that, that mysterious, deep, deep hurt that comes when someone tells you that the creator of the universe is disgusted with you or with Mm -hmm. something you've done is really different Mm -hmm. and much more damaging. Mm. And it makes me thankful in a weird way that I was raised in the secular environment I was raised in. Yeah. Isn't that tragic it in a is. way? It is. And I, yeah, I mean, my kids right. also because they're being raised in church. Right. And I haven't necessarily been on the front end. I have asked about youth group whenever I think they're, they, they usually warn us when they're going to talk about sexuality in youth group. It's only happened like <laughs> yeah. twice over the years that I've had kids in youth group. But then I'm kind of drilling them. What did they say? Because I'm worried that yeah. they'll get some of these messages that you got. They're going to. Oh. I'll just say that. Like, I don't know oh. of many evangelical churches that are sending a different message now. I mean, it hasn't moved. The meter hasn't moved far, if at all. You know, you and I were laughing. There's a, a hyster- well, a heartbreaking but hysterical, di- it's not a diagram, it's a picture, actually, of the Charm School book. Um, that she references oh my gosh and if I could just find it because I circled the date it's something that you feel like you would see it's on page uh, 47 the (laughs) the title is how feminine am I and this was like you know kind of how women women how the young girls in youth group were taught and so isn't she saying this was like in the 80s and yeah. she was taught a Christian charm class in her youth group right. from some of the women in her church. And when you look at it, you think like, book. okay, this is not 1955. This is 1985. Oh. In 1985, I did not look like this girl over here. Okay? The one that you're supposed to look like. She looks like June Cleaver. I mean, it's crazy. Anyway. Oh, I remembered it as being know? a book written in the 50s that they were using in the no. 80s. But it was written in the 80s. It was written in the 80s. So the the meter has not moved. Um, and then if you, you know, like, when did the, the Nashville statement come out? You know, that was 2017 or something or 2018. And, right, because that it was Southern Baptist to some of the um, yeah. legislation around trans rights. Right. And so they are getting those messages if they're sitting in youth group with, you know, anybody who's teaching from any kind of curriculum. That's the message. And so... I have to know that. Give and them this book. If you want to go <laughs> to the Christian camp or, this summer that you know they what? want to go to, oh, yeah. you have to read this first. Well, what I've said to my kids, though, is, you know, your dad and I don't have that opinion. We don't share right. that opinion. This is what you're going to hear. But we feel differently about it. And let us just describe why, you know. And so we've done that a lot, actually. And for good or for bad, 
can't believe I'm saying this this way. I felt like I had to shelter my kids from the church, you know, and even though I was part of the, very much a part of the church and, and the messages that we were sending. And I was trying to, at the time when I was, you know, running kids church and everything, I, they were mostly, you know, lessons that I struggled with around salvation. Like, how can I say this to children? You know, like, I think I, I often use that filter of how would I say this to my kids when I'm struggling with issues of faith or, or decisions that I was taught, you know, I was taught that in order to be a Christian, you basically had to be a Republican. I think I said this before, and it was because of the abortion issue. Okay. So there was like no room to go anywhere and hold your head up um, because, you know, we were taught that abortion is wrong, that life begins at conception. And she has this like amazing little two page um, report in the middle of this book that talks about how evangelicals basically switched opinions in the early 70s from life begins at birth to life begins at conception based on their view of scripture and how that changed most likely through some political means. Like, Absolutely, it, for political purposes. Yes. For the religious right, they were looking for a cause to galvanize. Right. And and I've read that in other books too. Yeah. So, so I mean, I, I went on the internet and, you know, had to do a little like, is she, I, I trust her, but is she right? You know, like that kind of thing, because it was just so shocking to me, you know, and like one of those things like, what? How could I have been duped like that? You know? And so I feel like I've had to modify the messages that the church gives to my kids about sexuality and about choices, the choice of whether you're going to have sex or not and when and, and how. And, you know, having the conversation with my daughters, like, do you feel like you're ready to go on birth control? My mom never had that conversation with me. Nor did mine just to know it in a uh-huh. secular family, because yeah. we're all Americans. Yeah. And so we're all sort of descended from that Puritan <laughs> ethic. Prudish, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And so my mom was raised by two people that left their... My grandparents were Catholic and Southern Baptists, and they left their oh. traditions to get married at the horror of all of their family. Uh-huh. And so therefore, they became Unitarians, right? <laughs> so my mom was raised Unitarian, but her grandparents, just two generations back... Mm-hmm. were of a different culture. So, you know, where did I hear this recently? Your grand, Jesus might be in your heart, but your grandfather's in your bones. <laughs> right? Oh, that's that a good, good one. Yes, yeah. indeed. Um, so, so we just have to be aware of that, that culturally right. things get passed down. Mm-hmm. So that even though my mother never would have held the views that the purity movement people did, mm-hmm. she still passed down a little bit of that kind of conservative shame type. and mm-hmm. which or just fear to talk about it I guess I should say just mm-hmm. fear of talking about it well and lack of a model right you know like you're blazing new territory when you do this you know like <laughs> it's scary you don't know if you're saying the right thing I mean it's parenting right you don't know if you're saying the right thing or doing the right thing or making the right choices and yet you're doing the best you can so these are some of the funniest conversations I have with my kids, for sure. We do laugh about them. But I do feel the jury's always out on whether or not it's a good move, you know. Uh, did this work or did it not? Was this the right thing or was it not? I don't know the answer. I won't know the answer. But, you know, I have kids in their 20s and late teens who are sexually active. And we talk about it. And I feel better about that than I feel about remembering what... I was doing, you know, with my boyfriend or whatever and not telling my parents um, and then feeling terrible about. So she she mentions that, that despite the church environment she was growing up in, she was having sex by the time she was 17 and just not telling anybody. Yep. And, And that's what she says, like a purity system, it doesn't create more holiness. It creates secrecy and shame and judgment. And fear. Yeah. And she says, you know, holiness is really what God has for us. And I love that. Like that's in the beginning of the book. And I, I love how she made that distinction um, because that's the word that's touted when we talk about purity culture is holy. But the idea that holiness has to do with union and coming together, wholeness, shalom, 
um, that, you know, peace, harmony, the, the togetherness, and purity is about separateness. And then, you know, the, how that plays into how we see Jesus, you know, living, that he honored rules, but he wasn't going to be bound by them at the peril of other people, you know, and that he honored people above doctrine or expectations or, you know, stereotypes. And his ministry was very incarnate, right? Yes. I mean, it was very physical. It was about caring for the needs of people's bodies. Right. Everything from the woman with the issue of blood to the lepers mm-hmm. to the woman putting perfume on his feet with her hair. Yes. Just And you then, know. of course, the... The most important tradition and sacrament in Christianity, no matter whether you're Catholic or Protestant or Eastern, is is the communion, is eating God. Right. Eating and drinking of God's body. So our whole religion is based on a very physical, life-affirming, body Mysterious loving, union. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> God. Yes. That is powerful. Union. And we don't, we don't often think on that or grasp that I don't think we've been so at least in most of the you know church arenas I we focus on the spirit as if it's separate she does talk about that story so well and I was gonna read that maybe if I can find it page 27 she says when I think of holiness the kind that is sensual and embodied and free from shame and deeply present in the moment and comes from union with God I think of a particular scene in the Gospels when right in the middle of a dinner party, a woman cracks open a jar of myrrh and pours it over Jesus' feet. She then takes her unbound hair, which was, I think, a shameful thing for a woman to have unbound hair in that culture, and wipes his feet, mixing her mane, her tears, and her offering on the feet of God. Her separateness from herself and her God is alleviated in that moment. Holiness braided the strands of her being into their original and divine integrated configuration. And those in the room, so like what a picture of just overcoming your boundaries, you know, and and letting yourself be seen, being vulnerable. And then those in the room with the woman and Jesus did what we humans too often do. They turned their backs on the holiness and intimacy of what they were witnessing and instead accuse Jesus of impurity. Like, to turn away and then judge. You know, that's what she says about purity. It doesn't make us holy. It leads to judgment and despair and that kind of thing. And and that's the same story over and over, right? though, isn't it? And Jesus keeps telling well, says, them they're wrong. And it's easier to regulate. You know, it's easier to point out impurity, impurity, than it is holiness. Holiness is much more of a mystery. And so one thing I think is really hopeful, she says, this is at the beginning of the book, but Uh I think it's a good way to end in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, So she says on page 10, what I wonder is this, if religion has been the venue in which the power of sex is taken most seriously, could it also become the place in which a new conversation about it arises? Mm. One that is not afflicted with legalism and shaming, and yet also does not ignore the depravity of human beings in favor of some delusional idea that we are capable of perfect selflessness. Selflessness. Mm -hmm. Can we, who have been raised within a broadly Christian culture, if not squarely within the church, be a people who strive for the sexual flourishing of all people? And if so, where can we look for guidance? So I just thought that was really hopeful. Like, I mean, if the church won't talk about it, about what it looks like Mm -hmm. to have sexual flourishing, then it's only left to the secret places and the dark places and that we could just begin to talk about the porn industry. Right, right. And she also has a great question in here somewhere about like the people that she's met that, oh, here it is. Here, I'll let her say it. Okay. Page 139. In my pastoral work, I've started to suspect that the more someone was exposed to religious messages about controlling their desires, avoiding sexual thoughts, and not lusting in their hearts, the less likely they are to be integrated physically, emotionally, sexually, and spiritually. Mm -hmm. I've also noticed that the less integrated physically, emotionally, sexually, and spiritually someone is, the more pornography they tend to consume. (laughs) So, you know, all the preaching that you hear, you know... And then find out later that the preacher has this other issue. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Right? Mm -hmm. All the time. (laughs) 
So how I, do you want to wrap up, Don? Well, I was going to tell a funny story. Great. And it went more with the sexual flourishing of all people. Um, and the part that you just read on page 10. I'm trying to think of the phrase. But anyway, like kind of for me with wanting to move forward and really wanting in particular for my children to have sexual health and have pleasure. <laughs> there was a, a, let's see, an event <laughs> during quarantine. Um, I sent you guys a picture of all my girls sitting on the bed with me. And because um, I've been, you know, teased by a few in our group that uh, they picture our home to be like little women, you know, like with all the girls around like knitting and stuff like that. And so I just happened to be knitting. And, <laughs> but what was also happening on the bed is the girls, my two older girls, um, we had been talking about sex. We had been talking about orgasms, actually. So they were on Amazon picking out vibrators for themselves that I would pay for. While my youngest daughter, who was given the choice to either participate in the conversation or just be in the room, and she chose to just be in the room, so she just sat on the bed. <laughs> I don't know what she was doing on her laptop, but she was, you know, sitting there, but listening in while um, my older two daughters were choosing vibrators so that they were able to understand their bodies and know kind of how their bodies worked and what worked for them to be able to communicate that with a partner. And that's one of the things we did during quarantine towards sexual flourishing. You're so. such a good mom. <laughs> In my parents' home, by the way, just to give you the full context, <laughs> since we were living with them. So here we are, you know, in the guest bedroom with the door shut. Like, don't let grandma know. This is what's happening. <laughs> How will we ever release this one? <laughs> this episode. <laughs> we'll cross that bridge later. Indeed. <laughs> it's offered with open hands, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> so... Do you want to pray for this one? How do you feel? I would like you to pray. Okay. All right. Father, Mother, God, thank you for creating pleasure and giving it to us as a gift. Amen. For being embodied, for coming to earth as a human in order to show us how to be human. Thank you that you've made all things holy and sacred. Help us, Lord, to be able to understand where boundaries need to be, to have courage to let them go when they, when they need to go away. Give us um, discernment and peace and freedom. I just pray that there might be future conversations with friends, with family, kids and parents, sexual partners, that would be open and honest and that would ultimately bring holiness, bring togetherness, bring union and that relief from feeling like we're isolated or in ourselves. Thank you for healing and thank you for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <laughs>